Father, you're good and faithful, uh, Father, to us, and you supply all of our needs. Every last thing we have is a grace from you, and we can't pay you back, nor do you want us to. All we can do is ask you for more. You're never-ending uh, fountain of blessing, and we'll never run you dry. So we come again to ask to, to draw from that fountain, to drink, to receive refreshment in life, Give us yet once more grace so that we may rightly divide your word, rightly understand it, and apply it to our lives. Um, do this, we ask, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and in the name of Jesus, amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word, Galatians 6, 6-10. through 10. The Apostle Paul Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so why do we do the things that we do? Or what what is the purpose for which we live? Uh, what, what, What are we driving towards in our lives, and and how do the things that we do fit into that greater purpose? Those may seem like broad philosophical questions or unhelpful, but they're not. They're very important. Uh, what we want to sow or what we want to reap in this life determines what we sow. What we are driving toward, the purpose of life, should actually determine how we live our lives. So we need to ask that question: Why do we do the things that we do? What are we doing? seems to me many, many people are meandering through life without a purpose. And that's understandable from one point of view for unbelievers, but I think as Christians there's no real excuse for that because the Bible gives us our purpose and our direction. Now how we live that out is another question. But our purpose and our direction is clear. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. These are our purposes, our telos, the driving thing to which all our lives, no matter our starting point, they converge there, at the glory of God in His kingdom. And we are also meant to take practical steps toward those ends. So those aren't just uh, trite maxims, do all to the glory of God. Those are things to which we are supposed to build our lives around, practically speaking. I can testify to this in my own life and the value of this. Um, in my own life is really the only one I have a back door to, a behind-the-scenes look at. Uh, But working backwards, I believe the primary way God gets glory, which is the ultimate purpose of the whole universe, is the redemption of a people. The church. This people is called the church. 
So seeking first the kingdom of God is to put the progress, the health, the peace, the unity, the purity of the church at first priority. Whether I'm pastoring or whether it's another vocation, that is the umbrella under which everything else falls. So from that conviction, I, I minister the way I do with the word at the center instead of relationships or programs which those things can flow from the word. But the word is the center because the Bible says that it is the word that sanctifies and saves and unites, corrects and instructs God's people. That, that is the means. So God has given us the purpose and the means to get there. And I find myself in this place because I have a passion to see healthy and and pure churches in rural areas. I also believe Reformation theology and ecclesiology best captures the glory of God in the church as we see it as in the Bible. And so those two things, rural ministry and Reformation uh, teaching, converge here. And I believe that the church is my first family. That means if my brother, mother, father walks away, you're my family before they are. Because ultimately, I'll share glory with you and not them. It's a hard truth. But my nuclear family, who is in the church, is the most important relationship and my first pastorship in the church. So we could go on and on about how the ultimate purpose takes practical effect in our lives and the things I just spoke about are really the ideal I fail to measure up to my own ideals daily but I want you to see that how what we want to reap determines what we sow and where we sow it the Bible tells us what is best to reap And that we can actually build our lives around that goal. And we don't have to be a pastor to do it. Any viable vocation is um, valid. So the exhortation of this passage is to sow spiritual seed with a hope of spiritual harvest. Sow spiritual seed with a hope of spiritual harvest. And there are really two great resources which God has given us to sow, if you will, in this life. Paul in this passage instructs us how we are to sow them and where we are to expect harvest. And those two resources are time and money. And we could maybe add as a third energy. Time and money. How do we sow these resources God has given us? So first let's look at our financial resources. Verses 6 through 8. Paul's primary point here is that What we sow our finances into are the things that we care about. And he calls us to invest in the word. So he says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Uh, First off, I'll just say that I have the privilege of preaching on this topic to a congregation who is exemplary in this. I'm blessed with that with such a small group we I've been able to receive the support that I have and it's because you all give so faithfully. I mean, during the Great Depression this is an interesting statistic during the Great Depression Americans were giving 3.3% of their income. Today we're at 
And you know the old adage that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And that's true financially as well in the church. But I, I don't know who gives what here, and I don't want to, but it's obvious to me that we're much higher than those stats and much more even. And so I just want to commend you in your faithfulness. And it's always been the case for God's people that God's ministers have been given a portion of what the rest of the people are blessed with. The, the Levites, for example, were given a portion. Um, ministers in the New Testament were given a portion. Preaching the word is not something that naturally uh, generates revenue, unless you maybe preach it unfaithfully. A very grave mistake churches often make is to treat pastors and teachers like a man for hire. You do this work, you get a commensurate salary. The biblical model instead is one of alleviation and not compensation. That makes sense? Alleviation, not compensation. I actually like the way the PCA standard call puts it. It says, that you may be free from worldly cares and avocations, we hereby promise and oblige ourselves to pay you the sum of X dollars. That you may be free from worldly cares and avocations. Alleviation, not compensation. Now, that's not to say that it is at all a problem for ministers to be bivocational or tent makers. The word tent maker comes from Paul, from Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, I believe D.A. Carson put it perfectly, something like this. I couldn't find the exact quote, but I know he said something like, the people of God ought to be generous and the minister ought not care too much. As an aside, one of my pet peeves is that we only alleviate oftentimes uh, professional pastors. It says here, with, with the one who teaches the word. That may be another sermon, but I believe we should alleviate as we can those who take and expend their time and energy to teach the word. Now notice it is the teaching of the word that's the focus here. That activity, the word being taught and listened to, is something worth investing in. In practical cents and dollars terms, we should invest in the word taught and heard. And here we can see Paul really is, is telling us simultaneously nourish the preaching of the true gospel and starve out the preaching of the false gospel. We have that power with the things that God has given us to nourish one thing and to starve out another thing. Calvin uh, put it this way. He said, uh, he saw that the ministers of the word were neglected because the word itself was despised. For if the word be truly esteemed, its ministers will also always receive kind and honorable treatment. It is one of the tricks of Satan to defraud godly ministers of support that the church may be deprived of such ministers. An earnest desire to preserve the gospel ministry led to Paul's recommendation that the proper attention should be paid to good and faithful pastors. So we have that opportunity to influence the kind of teaching we hear by what do we choose to nourish? And it shows what, what do we find important? Where do, where do we spend our finances shows what our priorities are. Are we willing to invest in the gospel? 
Now, this is not just about making sure the minister is well taken care of, or uh, really it's not a duty or a religious right. It's actually to our benefit as well. When we sow, we sow with an expectation of harvest. So in verses 7 and 8, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Obviously it would be foolish to plant cucumbers and expect to reap peppers. Yet this is the way we act toward God all the time. We, we sow and sow and sow to the flesh and then expect a spiritual harvest. He says, we must not be deceived. God is not mocked. We're not going to trick him. He has made the world in such a way that whatever we sow, we reap. Keep in mind here, the flesh can take several manifestations. It can be that loose living that we often associate with the flesh. But in Galatians, it's trying to produce and and procure our own righteous standing before God. That is also a work of the flesh. So I believe here he's continuing. His primary emphasis is on the, the financial or material sowing and reaping. Um, but he's applying broader principles to the subject. Anything we sow in the flesh, we can expect to reap corruption, he says. If we spend our time and energy chasing lusts and passions of the flesh, if we spend our time and energy trying to secure comfort and wealth, if we spend our time and energy on uh, self-improvement, making ourselves look good before God and man, whatever we do to the flesh, we can expect to reap corruption. So if we, uh, like the Galatians were, if we become deceived, if we're listening to and financially supporting false teachers, we can expect to reap what we have sown. The Western church has done this really on a massive and corporate scale, and we are reaping what we have sown. If, on the other hand, we sow to the Spirit, Paul says we will reap from the Spirit eternal life. In other words, put, put all your eggs in one basket. And we cannot deny it's painful to sow to the Spirit. Because when we do, we, we subdue immediate gratification. In fact, we push gratification so far back that most of it is in the next life. And that hurts. Our flesh screams out at us when we do that. It does not like it. Paul contrasts the rewards for the flesh and the rewards for the Spirit. The reward for the flesh is... Corruption. The reward for the Spirit is eternal life. Now we think of the word corruption and we might think like corrupt politicians or, um, you know, something like that or, or, or just general sinfulness. But the word corruption here actually means death. It means decay. You know, when, when they said about David or about Jesus, his flesh shall not see corruption. He will not decay. So the contrast is between death and decay and life, and life eternal. One example of this kind of death where we sow to the flesh and reap death, Proverbs 5, 3 through 5, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end she is bitter as wormwood. 
sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. Flesh sows in anticipation of oil and honey, but reaps death. It reaps decay and corruption. And we see there, too, that the, the promise of gratification of the flesh is hollow. In the end, it doesn't pay what it promises to pay. How much better than to deny the lies of the flesh and to chase heartily after those things which offer genuine blessing. By sowing to the Spirit, we reap from the Spirit eternal life. Now, not that works are the ground for eternal life. Faith is, but faith manifests in actions. James 2, 14-17 What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The faith manifests itself in action. Read through the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Each one of those people, they didn't just attest to faith. They didn't just give lip service to God's promises. They acted in faith. They sought a better homeland. Now, the same issue is at play here in this passage. If we pay lip service to Christ and His cross, if we profess to be spirit-born, regenerate, new men in Christ, but so in the flesh, what can we expect? Corruption. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. That which we reap, we will also sow. If we are sowing in the flesh, we can't expect to reap eternal life. Because we demonstrate with our actions, we don't believe God. Uh, this is where kind of the early days of my Reformation journey, if you will, began is with uh, Brother John Piper, a great influence on me, and his, his kind of uh, mantra, if you will, Christian hedonism, really shifted the way I think about these things, about the way faith is manifested. And I don't think I'll ever shake that influence, and I, I don't want to. Um, if I can sum up his shtick, it would be something like this, that all of the universe has been made for God's glory, and we were made to bring glory to Him, and it, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And our satisfaction in Him is enacted in believing and acting upon the promises that are given in His Word in a confident hope of future glory. So here's that how that theological framework began to manifest in my own testimony. Uh, in my flesh, I'm disinterested in the things of God. I'd rather go fishing. But in the Spirit, I believe that a knowledge and affection toward God will bring me greater joy in the end, not because I think that in my flesh, but because the Word says it. In my flesh, I'd rather not attend church. In the Spirit, I believe that God gave me the church as my first family. In my flesh, I'd like to hide from people. I'd like to be a hermit farmer in the woods doing woodworking, that was my goal before I got married, was to, to tend sheep in the woods by myself. 
In the Spirit, I believe God, that the people of God need each other and that God has given me gifts to contribute and that I need you. The war between the flesh and the spirit rages on. But I can say this with confidence, that to the degree that I believe God and act on what he has said and not what I think or feel, to that degree I can testify that I have truly been satisfied in God. God does not disappoint. And that really, I think, is the essence of what it means to walk in the spirit or to sow to the spirit is to really truly act on the basis of God's word and God's promises and not what I think or what I feel. In other words, the Bible becomes my new brain. Biblical affections toward God are the actionable ones even if I'm not feeling it today. And it's, of course, the Spirit who enables that transition to take place. The final thing I want to point out here before we move on is that though, though there's a great uh, satisfaction in life through the Spirit, it is eternal life, future life, that we look forward to the most as Christians. That's our reward. And don't feel weird about the term reward. Sometimes I think we think that Christianity is purely altruistic, not for myself at all. But God wants us to long for the reward, to seek the reward. And the reward is Him. He's glorified when we seek His presence. So it's okay to do things for yourself, for a reward. And the greatest reward is not here, but there in the next life. So the broad principle here is sow in the flesh, reap death. Sow in the spirit, reap eternal life. And the principle applied here, I think, is, again, primarily focused on our finances and possessions. Uh, But sowing them in the spirit is to use them for God's glory by advancing the teaching and proclamation of the true gospel of God's word. I think we could continue to apply this passage to our financial stewardship, but I think he kind of continues to expand on the broader principles in verses 9 through 10. I'd actually kind of like to shift our focus from the financial stewardship to the stewardship of our time and energy as we look to these last two verses um, in 9 and 10. So, uh, 9 and 10, we'll read them in a minute. Uh, I think we need to face the fact that as much as we may have sort of grandiose, altruistic, philanthropic ideas, sitting in front of the TV is a lot easier. I mean, helping people, doing good for others, giving of our resources, or which we spent many hours collecting, these are expenditures. They're expenditures of time and energy that we take from ourselves and give away. If you subtract sleep and 40 hours of a work week from an 80-year life, there's roughly 300,000 hours left over. That's about 3,700 hours a year. Which may sound like a lot, but the truth is we still have to subtract any hours over 40 hours a week. A significant chunk should be obviously given to family. Uh, Another big chunk in dealing with maintaining all the stuff that we own. (laughs) And then there's friendships and and side interests and hobbies and passion projects. Uh, Air 
is compressible. You can squeeze it into a tank and use it, compressed air. Oil is not compressible, which is why we can use it for hydraulics. You can run it through a hose and run two, two sticks to operate a backhoe. The things that should not get compressed in our lives are often the things that become compressed. Family, friends, church. The things that should be compressed have a way of ballooning. Work and maintaining all of our stuff. I think if Americans could learn the foolishness of devoting all of one's life to a job we don't like, so we can buy stuff we don't use, but have to maintain, so that we can retire only after we are in poor enough health not to take advantage of any of our stuff, we'd be a lot happier people. If you ask somebody uh, how they're doing these days, there's two responses usually. Busy, tired. Time, energy. Busy, tired. Life is exhausting. It's physically, spiritually, emotionally exhausting. Our bodies themselves are weak. They start dying the day we're born. We all encounter all kinds of obstacles through our lives. These obstacles give us gray hairs and wrinkly skin. So it's no wonder here that Paul says, let us not grow weary of doing good, because it is wearying. Especially considering that this life consists mostly in sowing and in very little reaping. But we should take heart in our sowing, because the reward is very great. You know the, the movies where there's like a magical gemstone or a crystal or a fountain or something and you can go partake of it and, and receive boundless energy and power? I think there's such a thing given to us in the Bible. It's, of course, not a, a magical thing, but it's a real source of spiritual energy that we can tap into in this life. And it's real and never-ending, and that thing is hope. He says, this is exactly what he says. Do not grow weary of doing good for or because in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Hope is the source of energy for doing good. Paul explains this really well in Titus chapter 2 and verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now, how? Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That, that is what should propel us forward in doing good works. This life is a sojourn. We are exiles. We're passing through on our way to the homeland. We're meant to pack light. This life is to be lived. Not, not as though there's nothing else, but in light of the glory that is to come. And it's a glory far beyond our imagination because it's, it's not a glory that we have earned for ourselves, but
but it's far beyond that. It's a glory earned by Christ. We're his adopted brothers and sisters, and we receive what he earned. So when you are exhausted, when you're worn down from sowing and not reaping, tired of the spiritual warfare which rages on against you, against your family, against the church, when you're wiped out, when you're unable to take another step toward the good, remember the blessed hope. That, that is the, the crystal of power, if you'll pardon the expression. It will give energy to your weary soul. It will help you to reprioritize your life in such a way that the, in, the things of earth will grow strangely dim and that you'll be able to lay aside every weight of encumbrance and run the race that is set before you. He goes on here, then he says, So then, as we have opportunity, literally as we have time, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, I don't think he's saying, if we have a spare moment, use it to do some good. Who has a spare moment? I think he's saying, while we have the time left on this earth, Let's use it to do good. He has similar exhortations at the end of both Ephesians and Colossians. Ephesians 5.16, make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now there's proof that my in-laws are evil. (laughs) Sorry, that was low-hanging fruit. I couldn't help. (laughs) Their last name is Day for anyone who doesn't know. They're not evil. Make use that the best use of the time. That's the exhortation. And also in Colossians 4, 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. We only have so long. How, how will we spend the time left? How will we expend our time and energy and resources God has granted us to steward in this life? We need to spend them on our neighbors, on our fellow man, created in the image of God, he says. And especially on those neighbors who are of the household of faith of our first family. I want to be clear about the exhortation of this passage on a few points. It may feel like an added burden to an already burdensome life to do this thing. And I'm not asking you to add to your burden. I'm asking you to lay aside some of the burden and to pick up the yoke, which is light. You might say, well, pastor has gone to meddling. He's telling me how to spend my money and my time. Uh, I'm okay with meddling when the Word of God meddles. It tells you how to spend your money and your time. I'm not wanting to burden you by adding to you the weights of duties on top of all the other things that you have going on in your life. I'm trying to say you'll be far happier, far more satisfied, bring far more glory to God, and serve far more effectively in the kingdom if you can lay aside every weight of encumbrance, if you can travel light. Our time, our energy, our possessions, our finances are given to us not as rewards, but as gifts to be stewarded to the glory of God for His purposes. So pinpoint what you want to harvest. And so to that end, invest to that end. 
Sow to the Spirit and you will reap from the Spirit. And our reward awaits us, which is eternal life. And in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So as we have opportunity, as we have time left in this life, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those of the household of faith. Amen.